All your base are belong to us. Hello and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast lur- looking at Jesus, <laughs> a podcast lurking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, <laughs> encouraging the things we love to do better. Uh, I was distracted because I was thinking about the hacker voice I'm in meme <laughs> before we started this podcast and then I started laughing and then my brain flew out the window. Rest in peace. Uh, I'm Missy. I'm a writer and uh, I, you know, I gotta say, I still really didn't like really like the Matrix. I think it's fine. But Resurrections was my favorite one. I'm Mary, marketer, and I made the mistake of putting a giant piece of cookie in my mouth. I know. I was trying to stall for you. I was going on and on um, in the hopes that you could get that cookie out of your mouth. Um, uh, once again, Missy has created an art art piece of this outline, and I'd like to give kudos to this beefy topic. It is. It's so beefy. Especially to, for something you're not really into. Yeah, I had to cut a lot out of this one. And like, shout out to our Discord for giving us some good ideas to talk about, and then me being able to talk about like half of one of them. <laughs> so, but still, shout out to you guys. Thanks. Um, I thought you were th- the thanks was to me, and I was like, Mary, you're on the podcast. <laughs> Doesn't count. I also don't think I answered. <laughs> I don't think you did either. Um, so today we're talking about the last two Matrix movies. That's the Ma- the Matrix, mm-hmm. the Matrix Revolutions, and the Matrix Resurrections. So, if you haven't seen them, or if you you haven't watched them in a while, uh, the Matrix Revolutions once again follows Neo, who's now in a coma after his sick new real world lightning powers were revealed at the end of Reloaded. He's not supposed to be able to do that, so he goes into a coma. Uh, He wakes up in a train station to find that Sati, a program that looks like a young girl, is being snuck out of the Matrix by her family members as she does not have a defined purpose and will therefore be deleted. Neo is captured by the train man, which is my favorite name, uh, (laughs) and taken to the Merovingian. I know how to pronounce it this time. There you go. Uh, but is rescued by Seraph, Morpheus, and Trinity. Smith has gained the power of assimilation, which basically means that he takes over the bodies of other people, which he does to both Satsi and the Oracle, and eventually to Bane, who's a human in the real world. What the fuck? Bane blinds Neo in one fight scene that takes place in inside of another extremely long fight scene in which the humans of Zion defend the city from attack, which ends only when Neo jacks into the Matrix and has a final showdown with Smith. This sentence is a thousand words long. <laughs> who has assimilated with every single person in the Matrix. It's just Smiths everywhere, baby. Uh, after being beaten down, Neo wins the fight but exchanges his life for peace and the machines leave Zion. We watched this one. We were watching this one. We were maybe like a third of the way into it. And I was like, I don't know why everybody like doesn't like this one. I know, right? I thought it was really good. And then the fight scene started and didn't stop. <laughs> and I was true. like, Jesus. The fight scene does take forever. But I, it was... Like my of the movies was like my second favorite one. And I think it, uh, I don't know, maybe just because it rounded some of the story out for me. So it helped me yeah. actually care. Also, there's more people in it that I care about. Yeah, it was I don't just know if I care about, but <laughs> the, the, that fight scene was so long. It was probably the longest fight scene I've ever seen. But if you like fight scenes, if you like fight scenes, it's cool. But if fuck, if you don't, God help you, because it is fully two thirds of the movie. I think. <laughs> 
I know that there were some fight scenes because I had just watched these a couple months ago and I literally fast forwarded through them. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to watch them. Oh, I just fast forwarded. I think that fight scene or I think I was on my phone and literally wasn't paying attention because the fight scenes typically mean nothing. There's no, like, yeah. there's no stakes in them besides who wins. It was just the, the one in Zion in particular was just like I was because I'm watching it with my husband. He's seen it before and he's just like, oh, look, more Sentinels. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of Sentinels. Oh, look, more Sentinels. <laughs> they just keep coming. <laughs> There's just so many Sentinels. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, if you cut the, the fight scenes down by at least 50%, like, I probably would have liked the third one. <laughs> but I sure did tune the fuck out about halfway through because I was like, this is still happening. <laughs> Uh, the Matrix Resurrections is the new one came out in 2021 uh, once again following Neo now going by Thomas Anderson who is now a who now is not is now it's an important designation he now is a game developer in modern times working on the Matrix an influential video game based on the faint memories he have he has of his time as Neo or does he uh, two new characters Bugs and Morpheus who both is and isn't the Morpheus we know, uh, rescue him from the Matrix and start teaching him to become Neo again. Neo realizes that Trinity is also alive and they plan to rescue her, but are thwarted at first by the Analyst, who has been appearing as Neo's therapist. <laughs> um, the Analyst has learned that more energy to power the machines can be generated if they keep Neo and Trinity in proximity to one another, but not in a relationship because... It's weird. When they get in a relationship... I, he, they I think, figure it out they figured out, i think what's happening is he's just like you know the power of mutual pining the matrix is powered on mutual pining the matrix is ao3 oh my god you heard it here first um it's on it's on like ao3 is online matrix is basically online uh-huh. I'm, t- I'm tapping my temple you can't see this because this is an audio the medium machines are just making fan fictions mm-hmm Oh my god. Oh my god. We've we figured it out. Everyone's focusing on the wrong thing. <laughs> Scrap nobody, this outline. Nobody's talking about this. <laughs> so I but I, I think I think the point that the analyst is making is that like the the unfulfilled m- emotion or the unfulfilled like yearning is what creates this like abundance of energy more so than like the mundane going about your daily tasks stuff. Um Neo and the analyst eventually strike a deal. Uh, Neo will go back to his pod if he can't convince Trinity to leave the Matrix. Neo wins, but the analyst attempts to kill Trinity anyway, but is interrupted by Smith, now played by Jonathan Groff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize Honestly, it was him. Pretty good casting, I think. I know, I think so too. I think Jonathan, this is, listen, I don't have any particular beef with Jonathan Groff. Like, I don't, I don't know him. I barely am aware of him as an actor but i will say he kind of has evil vibes yeah i know you know like he's kind of got evil vibes um anyway (laughs) uh he's interrupted by smith now in the form of a new form jonathan groff and also neo's game developer boss he's todd howard uh trinity and neo get court who todd howard i don't know who that is he's the Bethesda guy. Oh, um, Trinity, Trinity, and Neo get cornered, but Trinity is able to fly. Neo is not, uh, and saves them both. They both return to the analyst and vow to remake the Matrix as they see fit, which is kind of a weird thing to do, in my opinion. It's kind of a weird ending. Why wouldn't they get r- rid of it? 
I don't know. Unless some was, people want it. I guess so. I don't know. It was a we- it's weird. It was kind of a weird ending. Like in the moment, I was like, okay. And then I thought about yeah. it a lot more. And I was like, that's hmm. kind of weird. Okay. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> um, but I liked Resurrections. I, I enjoyed too. it. I thought it was a good uh, Peter Pan story. I liked that it was brighter. Yeah. I could tell what was happening. I liked that it was self-aware. I did too. I liked that it was essentially almost making fun of itself without really making fun of itself and making fun of the viewers without really like humiliating. It was very loving. I felt that it was very loving. Yeah. And I thought it was, I I thought it was just a really good update for, and I thought it was, you know, I thought it was good. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I liked, you know, it wasn't a perfect movie and it's still not my genre, but I enjoyed the experience of watching this one, I would say, about on par with my enjoyment of watching the first one. I think you might have to have some idea of the commentary that has been going on through the years over the Matrix movies to truly, like, maybe enjoy, like, the banter part where they're like, what is the Matrix about? Like, to enjoy those things, you probably have to have some idea of, like, what it's actually referencing. So for maybe people who don't know all the discourse around these movies it might not be as great but i feel I th- like like if my mom watched this movie she would not be impressed yeah yeah but i don't know she might she my might. mom's my mom's pretty up for anything that's true um but yeah i, I liked how self-aware it was i liked yeah. how meta it was it was almost just like yeah fucking lean in i wanted to talk about that and postmodernism and that kind of thing of course you did but this outline is really long so <laughs> it got cut sorry Instead, we're going to talk about fatalism. Uh, Fatalism is the idea that any foretold event is inevitable and meant to occur. Uh, It's sort of like you can look at it as sort of a specific branch of determinism. Uh, We talked about determinism in the last episode. But interestingly, fatalism is not entirely at odds with free will. And I think that you'll appreciate this, Mary. It's a way of, because, you know, we talk about determinism and it was kind of, when you really think about it, it's kind of hard to get out of determinism. Like, you can't really get yourself out of it. You're like, well, yeah, I kind of am where I am because of everything that's came before. Mm-hmm. Do I ha- do I really have free will <laughs> then? And it gets very upsetting and you hate it. Um, but fatalism is not necessarily incompatible with free will. Um, so there's a book called Like a Splinter in Your Mind by Matt Lawrence, which uh, is... A lot of there's a, a lot of times when we're talking about you know different media there will be like a philosophy and insert media here book that like connects I mean it's it's basically the kind of stuff that we do on this podcast right connecting pop culture to philosophy or whatever um, this book was actually more of like oh you like the Matrix I'm going to use the Matrix to illustrate philosophical concepts as opposed to here's all the philosophy in the Matrix Mm. which was an interesting approach if you like that kind of thing it was a pretty solid book Um, do know it came out in 2003 Um, the the Wachowskis were not out at this point Um, wild reading articles and like just the amount the amount of dead naming of the Wachowskis I, I don't I legit I was not like aware of the Wachowskis prior to them coming out basically Mm -hmm. and so like i'm i'm like who are these people that you keep naming i don't know who they are um anyway so just be aware of that getting when you if you read this book it was it feels like aggressively dead naming but they simply were not out at the time uh so 
in this in this book, like a splinter in your mind, uh, Lawrence uses the story of Oedipus Rex by Sophocles to explain the idea of fatalism. So if you haven't read Oedipus Rex or just Oedipus, um, the prophecy in this play is that Oedipus will kill his father and marry his mother. Right. That's and this is where Oedipus complex comes from Uh, to thwart it. Oedipus's father, the king of Thebes, sends I think it's Thebes. I'm pretty sure it's Thebes. You think I would have looked this up and I didn't Um, to to thwart the prophecy. Oedipus's father, the king, sends Oedipus away to die, but he ends up being raised by this random shepherd. Uh, Later, as an adult, Oedipus unknowingly gets into a fight with his real father, the king, and knocks him out of his chariot and kills him. Uh, happens yeah you know happens the best of us uh oedipus then ends up solving the riddle of the sphinx and <laughs> really sounds said stink the riddle of the stink the riddle of the sphinx and he frees thereby, thereby freeing thebes from the sphinx and oedipus then marries the queen as a reward now because it's the queen of thebes that's his mother so none of this happens intentionally he does not intentionally murder his father he does not intentionally murder his mother but it happens all the same so it may be that if this exact chain of events hadn't been followed such as if the king had not sent oedipus away and had instead raised him as his son it could be that none of this would have happened right we don't know we didn't get to see that timeline we only get to see the story as it plays out it could be that the oracle saw the only possible future because of hard determinism as in the events were laid out ahead of time and they must be followed exactly like this you have no free will but there this could also be an example of partial fatalism in which the ending is preordained oedipus will kill his father and marry the king but the path there is not preordained, hmm. right? So if Kling, Kling, if King Polybus had instead imprisoned Oedipus or just raised him as his own, it may be that the end events, killing his father and marrying his mother, would still have happened, but in a different fashion. So that leaves room for both free will and determinism and fate. So for example, hmm. if he had imprisoned Oedipus, maybe uh oedipus breaks out of prison not knowing his father is there accidentally kills him on the way out not realizing it's his father and then something happens and he ends up marrying the queen right Mm -hmm. that's possible it could be that he was raised as um he was raised under his father as normal but something happens and his mother is kidnapped or something and he goes to rescue her but she's misidentified and he ends up killing his father and marrying his mother Mm -hmm. anyway the the thing that fatalism this idea of fatalism is expressing is that you can have free will and that you get to make the choices, but the end point stays the same. So it's not the fate that happens and on the way it's the friends you make. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How you get there. That is your choice. The the real, it's the journey. It's about the journey. Uh, It's about the journey and manifesting. Exactly. I think this is to some extent what the matrix revolutions is going for. Uh, It manages to leave space for the Oracle to exist and to be correct, and it leaves space for narrative surprise and free will, which Mm -hmm. is important to the themes of the movie. So when, in the end, Agent Smith realizes he's been compromised by taking over the Oracle and she speaks through him because he says, everything that has a beginning has an end, Neo, he is both quoting something that the Oracle said earlier in the film and referring to him as Neo rather than Mr. Anderson, which is the only time he does so. Mm -hmm. So he has already seen the future that he is going to, quote quote win right he wins against neo he has neo down 
But still, there's room for that surprise, that twist at the end, that the Oracle then speaks through him, and it is actually Neo that wins. The important events that have been foretold transpire according to the prophecy, but how you get there and what those mean does not follow our expectations. Um, and that's kind of how that's kind of how free will and fatalism can be compatible. Um, and this, you know, can feel almost as limiting as hard determinism to an extent. But the scene with the Oracle and Smith in Revolutions where they're in the kitchen maybe doesn't contradict that feeling of like limitation or like restriction of free will. But it gives us an alternate way to think about it. Um, despite knowing what's going to happen, that Smith is going to throw the cookies against the wall and have a whole fucking temper tantrum. Uh, the Oracle still makes the cookies and she sits calmly at the table knowing that Smith will not only throw the cookies, but remark upon the futility of her making the cookies, knowing that they're going to be thrown against the wall. And then he's going to take her over. Like she knows going into it how this is going to play out. Um, but she doesn't run. She doesn't refuse to make the cookies. She chooses to make the cookies anyway, expressing her free will just as, in the end, Neo states that he chooses to fight. Um, She's just along for the ride, trying to yeah. make it. Smith, Smith, at the end, hits Neo with a whole bunch of nihilism, asking why he does this, what he's even fighting for, and then denounces things like freedom and truth and love as illusions, and says that Neo is, quote, trying desperately to justify an existence that is without meaning or purpose, and then goes, why... Why? That was really good. That was really good. Hmm. Why? <laughs> Why, Mr. Anderson? Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, and Neo just gets up and goes, because I choose to. Ooh. Uh, side note, this ending is corny as fuck. I loved it. <laughs> you know I love that corny shit. I see it. I go, yeah, baby. I love it. Uh, instead of saying, th- you know, instead of like defending himself by going, no, love is real. And truth is real. And freedom is real. Neo just kind of sidesteps that entirely much as he would sidestep a bullet and just goes like, I choose to. I get up because I choose to. It's when you're the parents answer because. Yeah. Because I said so. <laughs> um, that he is, does act like a child. So <laughs> that is itself an endorsement of free will, because if he can choose to do it, he has some degree of freedom. Right. Uh, but it also struck me as in line with the discussion we had about Baudrillard in our last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last episode, I wondered if the Wachowskis might be rejecting Baudrillard's nihilism. Mm-hmm. Um, but this conversation at the end of Revolutions actually struck me as less of a rejection of it than I expected. In fact, to shout out Reddit user Kinder Demon once again, it feels exactly like their comment, which to remind you is, you can fight for positive change because you hate the world mm-hmm. as it is, not because you believe in a better one. You can eat the rich because you are hungry, not because because God or morality approves of it, and they can't call you a bad person if you do. Um, so are the Wachowskis rejecting nihilism? I'm really not sure. Maybe they were initially, but the ending of Revolution seems to maybe not like embrace nihilism, but acknowledge it and look at it and choose to stay the course regardless. Um, I don't think that they are embracing the truest form of Baudrillardian nihilism, especially because I think that Neo really does believe in a better world and that fighting Smith and ending the war is the morally right thing to do. Whereas I think that Baudrillard would be more like there is no moral right. There is only what you choose. Um, Though both Baudrillardian nihilism and the Wachowski films might reach similar conclusions, we fight because it's what we choose to do. The reasons I think are different. Um, I find that really intriguing, especially because I think it makes the films less of a like 
fantastic adaptation of Baudrillard and more its own unique thing. Like, like in conversation with. Yeah, it feels less like it's trying to make a movie explaining Baudrillard and more of a movie that is talking about Baudrillard and their own reaction to it. I think that's more effective in um, getting an audience to talk about it too. Yeah. Because you're not really relying on them to be like, all right, go read some Baudrillard. Yeah, it, it feels less like this one person is right and more like we all can have different means of engaging with the world. And I think that's really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a quote from Like a Splinter in Your Mind by Lawrence, who writes, Neo's response to Smith's question of why is interesting and one that Sartre himself would endorse. We didn't talk about Sartre. Sorry. There's so much. Um, back to the quote. He doesn't try to refute Smith's claims by arguing that there is such a thing as objective truth or true love. And he doesn't try to deny that these are mere constructs of the human mind. Instead, he simply exerts his freedom. He gets up for more simply because he chooses to. He creates and chooses his own purposes. And in so doing, he becomes an existentialist hero. And to me, this really asserts asserts the movies as being about free will and choice, despite all the odds. As we'll get into, they're also about other things. Uh, But free will and choice dovetail nicely with what some of those other things are. And I was actually really impressed with the ending of that movie. I thought that was really impactful to have him not be like, no, love is real and I'm going to prove it. Yeah, I I totally agree. I totally agree. It doesn't need proving to him. The more important thing is that he makes the choice to get up and he does it because free will from the beginning has been one of Neo's like core values. Yeah, I like I like not having to explain every reason they do something. Also, it's not like Smith's gonna get it. Yeah, it's like fighting with someone who who already has their mind made up. Yeah, so there's no point. Yeah, there's no point in arguing with Smith about that. You're not gonna convince him that love is real. Well, and also like it get probably probably his response makes someone think more than being like, no, I'm right. Yeah, like I don't know if you're like because I choose to or whatever. You're like, well, why did he say that? I feel like that gives more opportunity for someone to really think about it. Yeah, he's not bound to anything. Yeah. He's he's not restricted by like what's allowed under love or justice or truth. Yeah. He's he's only bound to his own choices. Um, and I think that's that's a much more impactful ending than for like him to go up and give Smith a hug. And I defeated I, I by the power of love that too, because I think that's hilarious. I think they should have kissed with tongue. And then I think he should have said. <laughs> Why, Mr. Anderson? <laughs> and then it should have been because I can. <laughs> and then they made out. Yeah, but like their tongues are out. Like, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> let us write. We're the back matrix. to Ao3. <laughs> Ao3 is the only real form of reality. I gotta go find some weird matrix. Oh god, I bet it's ripe. I bet it is. Just a fucking orchard of fruits to pick. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything else to say about fatalism, free will, etc.? Yeah, it's better than than the other one, but it still but freaks me out. Oh, <laughs> I see, I see, I see. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, it's better. I still I have some choice, but like in the end, it's still the same. I think we should all be a little freaked out by existence. I, I think that's fair. We gotta all walk around just a little freaked out. But I out also all the think time. that's why the what he says works because you just gotta fucking take what you can. You, st- you still gotta go. Like you gotta, you gotta go. Keep going, and you know, you take what you can. Yeah. Um. Let's talk about race and the savior narrative. This was so interesting as I read through this. This the savior narrative thing 
I, t- I touched briefly on it in the last episode. Um, there were quite a few essays and articles talking about the Matrix as a chosen one slash savior slash white savior narrative. Um, and this absolutely fascinated me. Like, I was obsessed with it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I'm like a fucking influencer over here. Uh, it's it's pretty clearly, right, a chosen one story, even though I do think it kind of plays with the concepts of that. Because when I, I agree, like, there's a bit of like, he's only the chosen one because he chooses to be the chosen one. And really. all the different options. Yeah, like it could. Yeah, I, I found that like, it's not like super subversive or anything, but at least it's not like by the book. It gives a little spice. Yeah, like a little. A little cayenne pepper. Yeah. A little paprika a on little your pasta. on your boiled egg. Yeah, some, some paprika. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Uh, so that you know, there's this idea of the Matrix as this white savior story. Really, really interested me because Keanu Reeves is mixed race. You think that someone who's like, hmm, Keanu doesn't necessarily sound like a white name. Yeah, maybe I should Google this. Yeah, I never thought about it because, like, I don't know. I guess I just don't think about people's names <laughs> very much. Well, I also think he, I mean, he looks mixed race to me. Mm-hmm. So I think, it, I, I feel really, like, I feel really bad for him. Yeah. And he's mentioned this before in interviews of, right. like, people forget that I'm Asian. Yeah. And, like, him being in that one movie. Um, Always be my movie. Yeah, baby. like, it was really, like, special to him. Also, he's fucking amazing in that movie. Yeah. Um. So I thought, I agree. I think this is so interesting because I, I don't know if it's just ignorance or, like, like unconscious willful ignorance it's so it was it's just utterly fascinating so keanu reeves is mixed race we talked about this in the constantine episode as well i'm wearing my constantine shirt today it was coincidence um not planned it wasn't planned i was putting it on i put it on i was like oh i'm recording about a a keanu reeves movie today and then i was like well i'm not taking it off um he keanu reeves is often cast as characters whose race either isn't mentioned or isn't important to the story and is and those characters are often read as white by viewers. Um, but he is of native Hawaiian and Chinese descent as well as European. Um, it is not Keanu Reeves's fault that he has light skin yeah. and some more European features, nor do I think that he's like trying to hide his heritage in any way. Uh, otherwise, as Mary mentioned in the last episode, he wouldn't have been so pleased to be part of the predominantly Asian cast of Always Be My Maybe. Uh, so as we talk about the subject, please know that any mention of Keanu Reeves having lighter skin or like quote unquote passing for white are about how people read him, not about whether or not he is allowed to be considered a person of color or any actions that he that we're not trying to project onto him that he is choosing to act quote unquote white in movies if you think this is really interesting you should um i suggest anyone who thinks like this white passing in hollywood should read seven husbands of evelyn hugo yes she does that also i uh halsey has this issue too because she's half black right and she definitely doesn't look it Mm -hmm. except when she was a child and um so she gets hounded all the time for the way she does her hair and stuff like that yeah it's very interesting yeah, we don't get to make these judgments about him, whether he is choosing to not act, you know, to, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's this tendency when we talk about this kind of thing to, like, suggest that he is 
choosing to downplay his heritage, which I don't think is necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. And I certainly wouldn't know. I don't know him. Mm -hmm. Um, So the questions we want to look at here are, is this The Matrix a typical savior narrative? And if it is, what, if anything, does it mean that Keanu Reeves, a mixed race man who many people misread as white, is playing that savior? Does the narrative consider him to be a white man or a mixed race man? Because that does change the way that we read the story. Um, There are quite a few issues with the white savior narrative. They are often written by white people about the exploitation of people of color or allegorical people of color. Think Avatar, not The Last Airbender. Um, And and these stories will often follow a white hero or heroine who transcends the racial boundary and saves the people of color while learning something about themselves. Like what? The help? Yeah. You see this in stories like The Help, Freedom Riders, Dances with Wolves, The Last (laughs) Samurai, so on and so forth. Um... There is very rarely any attempt to engage with racism as a process and as a systemic issue in these stories. And that is why a single person is typically able to overcome it because racism is seen as a character flaw rather than as a systemic issue. Mm -hmm. Um, In The Matrix, you have a man who many read as white. In another essay I'll cite uh, a bit later, Neo is identified as a white man. Like they refer to him as a white man. So interesting to have put that much effort into writing an essay. And not at least go and be like, I don't know, do some, I don't know, I guess. Here's the thing. I think it's, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to read Neo as a white man. That's fair. Like, is Neo, maybe Neo is a white man. Keona Reeves is mixed race. Is Neo. Interesting. Because there's definitely a divide here between who Neo is and who Keona Reeves is. And it's like, is Neo constructed to be a white man or is he constructed to be a mixed race man? It gets complicated too when we look at casting. So just kind of put a, <laughs> put a pin in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in The Matrix, you have a man who many read as white being the chosen one to save humanity from enslavement. Like that's literally what's going on. Further, the people he represents are largely, not entirely, but largely people of color. If we allow for the reading of Keanu Reeves as white rather than mixed race, he is a white messiah figure representing people of color and saving the universe. It's not great, right? <sighs> Uh, the next couple of quotes seem to suggest that Keanu Reeves as Neo is either white or that audiences read him as white. So when we're talking about them, keep that in mind. Uh, Reeves experiences privileges associated with having light skin and more European features, but that doesn't mean that he isn't mixed race. Even if he isn't white, it's important to note that light skin privilege exists and it's worth remarking on that he can that he gets cast and what he gets cast for of over another mixed race actor who might not have light skin or European features. Uh, We know Will Smith was up for the role and he turned it down. We'll talk more about that later. Love that they're just like men in black, right? It gets so like this, like genuinely, this is one of the most interesting things to me is that is the idea of Neo as a white savior, even though Will Smith was almost cast in the role and they ended up with mixed race Keanu Reeves in the role. Like you said, it still makes sense of Neo. Yeah. Like is, could it be that Neo is in fact a white man? I don't know. Every time white man is said, I just hear the the clip everyone uses on TikTok and in reels. That's from I think it's New Girl. Where he goes, a white man. <laughs> uh, so this is a quote from Back to the Future: The Humanist Matrix, which is by Laura Bartlett and Thomas B. Byers, who write. B. Byers, it's a great. I love that. <laughs> 
It should be noted in connection with the strong leader fantasy that the hero's natural and supernatural superiority go along with a certain disturbing sense of elitism and droit de seigneur. The movie suggests that those who remain under control of the Matrix do so only because they have an inferior consciousness susceptible to AI colonization and unable to recognize, as Morpheus says, quote, the world that has been pulled over their eyes, unquote. As Morpheus explains to Neo, the, quote, businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the people we are we are trying to save are not ready to be unplugged and many of them are so inert so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it unquote for that reason we need not mourn the numbers of them who constitute neo's body count in the final action sequence it seems clear by this point that there that this is no fantasy of socialist revolution or for that matter of the coronation of a prince of peace but rather something much closer to the triumph of the ubermensch so there's a couple things to glean here from this quote keeping in mind that many viewers read neo as white neo's specialness that makes him the one positions him above not only the many people many of whom are not white who have already been woken up from the matrix he's already elevated above these people right Mm -hmm. it also positions him above those who haven't been woken up again a large percentage of which are not white nothing in particular makes neo more special other than destiny or programming depending on how you read the point in reloaded where we find out that he there has been six ones or he is the sixth one uh, if we read Neil was white, as many viewers and critics did, and from my reading, it, this seems to be a, prom- a phenomenon that came mostly in the early 2000s. When you get into criticism mm-hmm. coming later in the 2010s, there's more acknowledgement of Keanu Reeves, uh, or in 2020, post-2020, hmm. um, there's more acknowledgement of Keanu Reeves as um, as mixed race. And I think that may have to do just with like more awareness. Mm-hmm. Um so like if that if that awareness had existed in the early 2000s when these movies were coming out, it may be that fewer people would have would have identified him as white. Um, but so if we if we do read Neo as white, as many viewers and critics did, that's an uncomfortable positioning of whiteness. Right. It seems it's very kind of manifest destiny. Yeah. Like it, it is his destiny as the woke, literally woke white person. <laughs> <laughs> to save the world from enslavement. Um, Bartlett and Byers also bring up the Nietzschean idea of the Ubermensch here. And we've talked a bit about the Ubermensch in the past. I don't remember what fucking episode I don't it was know. at this point. We do episodes and they go straight out my brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, while Nietzsche himself died in 1900 and therefore did not survive to see World War I, let alone the rise of the Nazi party. How um, angry do you think he would have been? Furious. He clearly opposed German yeah. nationalism and anti-Semitism within his lifetime. He would have been pissed. Um, his sister, who actually, actually was part of the Nazi party, uh, she manipulated his work to fit her and her husband's viewpoints, which was later adopted by the Nazis. Uh, they took the idea of the Ubermensch, which is this kind of goal for a new standard of humanity that would represent the earthly ideal as opposed to like the ideal in heaven, uh, and applied it to the master race ideal that the na- that the Nazis pushed. I will say that probably is easy uh, was easy to do. Yeah, they they simply at least on a surface level. They simply said, "Oh, the Ubermensch and the master race are the same," and just kind of dusted their hands. Yeah. Uh probably didn't get much deeper than that. Yeah. Uh regardless of what Nietzsche intended, which I don't doubt the Wachowskis are familiar with, uh there is an association now between the idea of the Ubermensch or the ultimate goal of humanity and the master race as defined by the Nazis. For Neo to, like to the point that now some people think that Nietzsche was a Nazi but he died fully 30 years before the rise so of the Nazi literally party. impossible. Yeah, like he did not 
like the the Nazi party arose out of like I mean a, a lot of complicated stuff, but part of it being World War One, and Nietzsche didn't even live to World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, for Neo to essentially take on the role of the Ubermensch in the Matrix is again uncomfortable, especially because so many people took away from the movie that he was white or white passing enough to be like them, them being a white audience. It defines white or white passing masculinity as the ultimate goal for humanity, and this is not unusual for savior narratives or chosen one narratives to like have a weird another white man is the chosen one especially like uh it's like everybody else doesn't seem to be white Mm -hmm. which is good Mm -hmm. like that's not necessarily bad that your whole cast is made up of non-white people but it is it is interesting if when it is like the one person yeah and like, like it reminds me of a vampire diaries when all the witches are black except for the original witch yeah And it is, and like, I think too, another reason that people might, especially in the early 2000s, be tempted to read Neo slash Keanu Reeves as white is because he isn't as visibly a person of color as the rest of the cast. And that's worth like interrogating too. Like, why is he not visibly a person of color like so much of the rest of the cast? Why is it that the two people who look the whitest are the two romantic centers of the movie especially when they have no chemistry especially when they have no chemistry. like he has more chemistry with morpheus it was I, I think i think they did a lot better in resurrections i was like okay i think so too but i think because they gave her a backstory in which she can become much more like a not a sympathetic character but someone i can attach like a feeling to a single feeling yeah a single feeling yeah. it kind of felt like uh it reminded me of um wandavision <laughs> but like the ending being very different <laughs> and uh, like a choice between being good trinity and a choice between being bad scarlet witch <laughs> um because like her kid she had kids yeah I'm not a monster. I'm a mother. <laughs> now, a lot of a lot of that reading um, of Neo as white or white passing gets problematized when you know that Reeves is of mixed race and that the Wachowskis, two trans women who were not out at the time and who initially wanted Will Smith for the role, were probably not setting out to valorize white masculinity, mm-hmm. right? Like when you when you have that context, it reads differently. But you don't get to control the message viewers take away, which, in my opinion, is a big part of the themes of Resurrections. It's one of the reasons that I think Resurrections was such a good addition to the story. It shows how out of control the messages, like the quote unquote messages of the the matrix within the the world of resurrections how out of control those messages got because Neo was literally just telling about his life. The guy in which everybody sees that Neo is, but not actually he's white, isn't he? I wouldn't be surprised. If, I think he Oh, is. I think you're right. Oh my God, you're totally right. That guy's white. That's so interesting. That has to be. That yeah. has to be on purpose. Cause I because I think with everything, it being so much more like aware that he's he's mixed race. That yeah. has to be on purpose. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Um especially since like they were hiding you. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, from reading reviews and criticism from closer to the release date of the original three movies, that is what people were taking away from it, that Neo is white, that Keanu Reeves is white, and that he is playing the role of a white savior, which we know is not really what's going on. I don't think it's wrong to read Neo, the character, mm-hmm. as white, 
Like, I don't think that you would be wrong to do so. But I also think that you're not right either. With the context, it gets much more complicated. Yeah. And I think it's really complicated in a good way. And I think what you just brought up about the fact that people literally see Neo in the Matrix as a white man is like is just proof of that to me. Like they he he literally is the white passing in in the in the movie because he is shown to others as a white man this is why like i'm not a huge fan of these movies but i am because like this is so interesting Mm -hmm. and like that's why i think i liked the last one so much because they're like yeah we know it's interesting right let's get better about it (laughs) yeah um so this is a quote from wake up neo white identity hegemony and consciousness in the matrix which is by ricky lee allen who writes Uh, By depicting the Oracle as a black woman, the Wachowskis imply through imagery that the root of wisdom, both past and present, is African and female in origin. Also, it coincides with more recent trends in radical philosophy that contend that a systematic search for knowledge should begin with the wisdom of poor women of color, since they have the most experience with navigating multiple forms of oppression. The Oracle is particularly sagacious when it comes to questions of identity. On the wall of her kitchen, she has a plaque written in Latin that says, Know Thyself. This is an allusion to the identity development process that Neo is going through. The Oracle's words and demeanor make it seem as though she is very experienced when it comes to developing a positive sense of self. Her social location as an African-American woman gives the scene legitimacy. Um, And this is a quote from Freire inside of this quote. Who are better prepared than the oppressed to understand the terrible significance of an oppressive society? Who suffer the effects of oppression more than the oppressed? Who can better understand the necessity of liberation? And then back to Alan here. In contrast to the Oracle, Neo, as a middle-class white man, struggles throughout the film in his quest to know thyself. Neo's struggle is understandable since he has not experienced the dehumanization of racial oppression, save for his trouble with the corporate culture of Metacortex. So interesting. So interesting. Note that Alan here does, in fact, cite Neo as being white. Um, I. It's just so interesting. Like, Neo's struggle is understandable since he has not experienced the dehumanization of Rachel, Rachel, Rachel oppression. <laughs> Rachel's oppression. <laughs> Fuck the, you, Rachel. Neo's struggle is understandable since he has not experienced the dehumanization of racial oppression. However, like, he's mixed race. Like, Keanu Reeves is mixed race. And, like, therefore, in our general understanding, Neo is mixed race. But is Neo mixed race? Well, and also, like, when these movies came out, obviously Keanu Reeves wasn't out there being like, yo, I'm not white. I'm mixed right. race. But like at the same time, like, could he have said that? Yeah. Does he have to? Does he have to? How is that going to affect his career? Mm-hmm. How is it going to affect the like his quote unquote legitimacy of being a specific race? Which was already like people. I think by the time the Matrix sequels were coming out, people were, were already like deciding they didn't like Keanu Reeves anymore. Yeah, he had a resurgence. Yeah, which I think was like it had some like did it have something to do with overcorrection for how he was criticized? I think so. I can't remember. I don't know the whole story. Um But I'm glad he's back. Yeah, back I think again. he's he's a lot of fun. He is, and I think he um speaks interestingly (laughs) it's true um another issue with the white savior narrative is that while it may include characters of color they're usually only helpers assistants obstacles or victims for the white savior to save we can see that this is true in the matrix right the story is on the surface about an exceptional white man quote unquote flanked by a black man and a white woman aided by people of color whose main storylines are about the success of that white quote unquote man quote unquote white quote unquote man um if you read neo is white that becomes the story of all of the diverse cast propping up a white man who is nonetheless praised for being exceptional 
not great. <laughs> this essay and some others we'll get into isn't saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. Allen argues that rather than elevating the white protagonist, this honors the knowledge and wisdom of black women as well as the contributions of like Morpheus as a black man, mm -hmm. which I don't know. I think the casting and characterization of the Oracle are deliberate. Um, but I have seen my fair share of white women leaning on black women to save us all and provide free education without putting in the work themselves. Yep. If this cause is so noble, if the wisdom of black women is so treasured, then why not have the protagonist be a black woman, you know? Yeah. Like, you know. I think it was, I I totally think it was deliberate to do most of the cast as non-white people because it just didn't see that. In the right. early 2000s, you just didn't see that. Yeah. And so it does make it like, it just only adds to that layer of Keanu Reeves being mixed race, Neo being white, and like everything that goes in there. Something is certainly being communicated there. And I don't think that we need the Wachowskis to comment on it for us to like glean something interesting. And from I, it. and I wonder if this is their way of talking about the trans experience. But using, like, not talking about it, mm -hmm. but using There's ways, a lot of that. We'll get into that section. <laughs> but using ways that people can attach to and, like, be like, oh, yeah, I learned about, like, oppression in school. Right. And using that to not promote, to, like, e express their frustration. Yeah. I think that the Wachowskis, and we talked about this in the Sense8 episode, they, their stories are often about, like, this mm -hmm. kind of radical compassion for difference and like the strengths that our differences imbue us with, like in a positive way. But there is an issue with a sort of flattening of experience mm -hmm. that the Wachowskis like repeatedly do. Well, and I also think there's, there is, I don't know if there is, but I think there's definitely up for discussion of like, is using the black experience or a person of color experience of being oppressed and using that as a as a white woman, okay, especially when one of them has dreads, like, yeah. like, are you? I wouldn't say fetishizing. That's not the word that I would use, but but like something similar of like, um, using their like their their oppression as a way to benefit themselves. Right. I think that the like it gets very complicated because like black trans women exist, mm -hmm. trans women of color exist, and so why not talk about? that experience as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to map racism specifically onto the experience of gender when in fact there are intersections there um, and that does shape things like you it's not that you like when you try to flatten experience into one thing you end up like accidentally implying that like black trans people don't exist yeah um and they do in fact and they have a unique life experience that that is informed by both their race and their gender um I think it would be also interesting. Obviously, we can't do it here. We have all so much. But to do like a deep dive into like how race was handled around this time. Right. And if that affected it as well. Yeah. I imagine like some of I think in like a splinter in your mind, Lawrence notes that like there was some people found the the predominantly like the cast being predominantly people of color unbelievable. Yeah. There was pushback on it because it was just like that's too many. That's too many. That's too many. And we'll get into that uh, very shortly about like the reason that they might have chosen to do that. But first. I think that Fast and the Furious does this 
probably a little <laughs> bit better than them. Yeah. Uh, this is a quote from Wake Up Neo. Again, white identity, hegemony, and consciousness in the matrix by Ricky Lee Allen, who writes, uh, for whites to be anti-racist, they must learn to move other whites toward anti-racist and anti-whiteness ideologies. But what we get in the matrix is the message that the best way to transform whiteness is to move beyond it. In fact, there's an element of nihilism in the Wachowski solution to whiteness. It seems that they are suggesting that the best way to overcome an oppressive society built on oppressive ve- rules is to simply ignore the rules. And this is now the third Wachowski helmed thing that we have talked about. They didn't direct V for Vendetta, but I really think you can feel their mm-hmm. impact all over it. Um, and I think this is an unfortunate running theme of their work. I think that racism, sexism, and other forms of bigotry are baked into the matrix that Neo is attempting to free people from, right? Like he is literally attempting to free people from the 1999 world that assuming you were alive in 1999 um, that you, that we inhabited. Um, but it is still Neo freeing them and unlearning it. And and within the context of the matrix, unlearning that is really as simple as taking a pill and unplugging yourself. It is not actually that simple in real life. The- if only. Yeah, the Wachowskis often seem to be operating from a post-racial perspective, meaning that their stories tend to suggest that racism is a thing of the past unless it is concentrated in a few bad people. That feels very Wachowski to me. Yeah, (laughs) that feels so Wachowski to me. Uh, This allows people to absolve themselves from responsibility and perpetuating or benefiting from racism without questioning it. You also see this in ideas about colorblindness, something we'll get into as well, which suggests that not seeing race is tantamount to being is tantamount to race being something only bad people see. Um, In fact, ignoring the realities of race in our culture can be just as damaging as being actively racist. Uh, We don't need to deny that race exists to end racism. We need to understand what racism is, what purposes it serves, and how it impacts people. There's a really good conversation about this on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. (laughs) I'm glad. It was really good. It was really good, especially because, like, so these are rich, rich women, and the, this new woman, she's Asian, she's and she's much younger, and she's just like, she looks at the one girl, she goes, tell me you're that girl who doesn't see race. <laughs> it was really good. And then they're having a conversation later, and Kathy Hilton's like, I don't see race. Michael Jackson told me the same thing, because she, like, knew Michael Jackson, because these are rich women, oh and my God. it was very, it was a really good conversation. Oh, my God. Um... So as we've discussed, despite the potential reading of Neo as a white savior, this is a series with a very diverse cast. Even aside from the main cast, most of the population of Zion seems to be people of color, which is really interesting. On the one hand, I think the Wachowskis are depicting this idealized post-racial dream where whiteness is no longer dominant. In Like a Splinter in Your Mind, Matt Lawrence proposes an interesting theory for why Zion has such a high percentage of people of color, which is, and this is a quote, it may be predominantly racial minorities who freed themselves from the matrix. As Morpheus indicates, most people aren't ready to be unplugged. They are dependent upon the system, and it will be those who are most dissatisfied with the system. The victims of racism may therefore be among the most likely people to welcome a way out. This is really interesting when you put this um, up against the real world people who red pill themselves being all fucking white men for the yeah. most part. I, I find this like really this a really compelling theory because like when you think about it, like who, who is more likely to see through the, like to see the constructedness of ideals in our society. Mm -hmm. And it's people who are impacted by them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in 19, not 1993, in 2003, it was probably easier to talk about visual signifiers like race, as opposed to gender signifiers which which if you look at how people wrote about the Wachowskis coming out I mean I think I can't remember exactly when 
I think Lana came out first. I think I was I was looking and it at was nasty. I think it was 2016 when the second Lily. sister came out. Yeah. yeah, and the the things that people wrote about Lana like nasty, nasty, nasty. I can only imagine. It's it was awful. Um, and so I think that like it was probably easier to talk about the constructedness of reality. Yeah by talking about something with a visual signifier like race as opposed mm-hmm. to gender, which is not necessarily a visual and which is um, complex. And I think in, you know, in 2003, it was kind of agreed upon racism bad. Yeah. Um, but we weren't quite, we were, I mean, it was also misogyny bad, but we, I don't think we had reached the point where we were, I think this capable a, of talking in the mainstream about um, trans being trans, you know. I think this was like the height uh, of like or like the end of an era where like talk shows like brought on racist people and BIPOC people to talk to each other, and so I think it was a like a probably a, like a perfect situation where like yeah, this is this we can use this as a way to like connect and make people understand. Yeah, um, I don't know whether this idea of like it was easy, it was easier to wake you know marginalized people up from the matrix simply because they were more aware of of the constructedness of society like i don't know whether that was intentional um it may very well have been i feel like it was yeah i like i i I feel like it was i can't i can't say it was or wasn't but i i feel like I would believe it if they were like, yeah, that was intentional. Just with the intentionality of like, they clearly went out to to cast this of, of mostly non-white people mm-hmm. and like all the other stuff involved that we've talked about. It really like, I'd be like 85% sure. Yeah. Um, but it, it does, regardless of whether or not it was intentional, it lines up nicely with what other more modern critics have said about The Matrix. When you look at the film through a more modern lens, one that acknowledges the Wachowskis as trans women and that acknowledge Keanu Reeves as a mixed race actor, uh, Lawrence does not. The book came out before the sisters came out. Um, when you keep those things in mind, it becomes a lot easier to get on board with this reading because instead of a white man leading the world out of enslavement, you have a mixed race man written by two women who understand that the reality we've constructed for ourselves is not necessarily real being the hero like that makes a lot more sense to me yeah um the wachowskis are not always good with race so i don't want to give them a ton of credit for something they may not have intended but reading work by later critics looking at the series retrospectively i saw a lot more praising of the film for its diverse cast and a lot less decrying it as white saviorism um this is a quote from the hidden gems of the matrix are its black characters which is by Kristen curry Kristen Corey, who writes, as a writer who writes about race, though, I can't help, I couldn't help noticing that some of the film's most compelling and foundational characters were black, even without a leading character in Will Smith, who famously turned down the role of Neo. Morpheus and the Oracle, Gloria Foster, a woman who uses her clairvoyant powers to help the insurgency, aren't just integral to the plot, both intellectually and in the tactical sense, they're characters who hold the keys to dismantling an oppressive system, which suggested to me that race was another through line worth unpacking in the film. After all, the predicament humanity is up against could easily be seen as a metaphor for slavery she's not wrong yeah like the white characters in these movies white again in scare quotes um the white characters in these movies are two things dull or evil right 
like like resurrections goes a long way toward making neo and trinity into interesting characters rather than just like archetypes um but still the most compelling people in the story to me were morpheus the oracle sati and so on like they were vastly more interesting i don't know that we can necessarily give the wachowskis credit for writing bland white protagonists and interesting (laughs) characters of color as a statement although to be fair they did do the exact same thing in sense eight maybe they were focusing so much on on trying to do right that they just I don't know. Up. I don't know what's going on there. Um, but it is interesting, right? That this is this seems to be a through line in their work. Yeah. Um, this is another quote from that same essay, The Hidden Gems of the Matrix Arts Black Characters by Kristen Corey. Um, while some academics have painted Neo as a traditional white savior, that reading undermines Morpheus's role as one of the chief architects of the opposition movement. True, he's decided that Neo holds the power to unlock a better world, one that allows us to escape the way we've been quote unquote programmed. But who better to do that than a person who looks like Keanu Reeves? a man who reaps the benefits of being a white passing male. As James Baldwin once wrote in a 1962 piece for The New Yorker, the power of the white world is threatened whenever a black man refuses to accept the white world's definitions. That sounds a lot like the plot of The Matrix to me. This is just, it's so interesting to me. I love the idea that Neo, by virtue of being played by Keanu Reeves, is embodying this resistance and rejection of the whiteness being placed upon him. Um, whether or not that's intentional is irrelevant. We can reject the author's intent when when we like an interpretation as much as we can when we don't like it, right? A lot of times when we say death of the author, it has to do with like, oh, I don't care what the author said because I don't like that interpretation. But we can also do it when we like the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um Because what is literally happening is that a mixed race man who benefits from white privilege is being deprogrammed by a black man. Mm -hmm. Morpheus, as Baldwin puts it, rejects the white world's definitions first. And eventually through, you know, his his um, teaching, Neo does as well. Neo rejects his his upbringing. And you could even argue that he rejects his whiteness. Um, I love this interpretation for many reasons. One being that I think it actually ages better than the white savior narrative. When I look at the white savior narrative, like when I look at the idea of the matrix as a white savior narrative, now I cringe a little because I'm like, but he's like, that's doing bad. That's doing a disservice to Keanu Reeves, who is mixed race. Now, if you want to argue that Neo is white and Keanu Reeves is, is mixed race. Now that is a, that's a compelling argument. I don't know that it's correct. Right. But I, it's worth talking. But about. it is worth asking, like, is Neo White played by a mixed race actor? Well, That's interesting. In the last one, kind of. Yeah, kind of. But I, I think that I think that, as you said, Resurrections kind of really p- puts a stamp on that of saying, like, this was intentional yeah. because he is like the the Neo that everybody else sees is white. But the actual Neo is not. Yeah, that is so interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up because I did not think about that while yeah. watching it. Excellent point, Mary. I feel good. I feel smart. Uh, it's not a perfect answer because my biggest question becomes what would the movies be like if his being mixed race were emphasized rather than unremarked upon? Although Choi in that early scene uh, does seem to heavily suggest that Keanu Re- or that Neo is white as opposed to just pale when he says you're looking whiter than usual. Which um, makes sense. Yeah. Since that's how they see him. Yeah, but that's not how they saw him in the original Matrix. Oh, that's true, yeah. Um, I'm not sure that the Wachowskis are the best choice for that story, uh, but I also think it would have been it would have resisted some of the more frustrating readings of the movie, right? But I think that this kind of, like, again, I think that the fact that the version of him that everybody else sees is white, like, really... Hammers it home. It really puts that white savior reading puts it into question and i love that i i don't know how successful like i don't think it was successful all the way back in 2001 to 2003 right because it seemed that like a lot of people were reading it as a white savior narrative yeah 
so interesting to read that. And I'm I'm glad that this has now been complicated by Resurrections. Um, do you have anything else? Resurrections was good. I know. Resurrections was good, actually. I feel like I wonder if like if we didn't do this podcast, if you would have if you would have enjoyed it as much as you did. I thought that, well, I thought at least like the first 45 minutes or so of it were super fun. I, I really like that. I did too. And I, I love that they changed it into a video game. Yeah. And I just, um, yeah, I think the best thing that I didn't notice was the simulate. Simulate. Um, I can't any, believe I didn't notice that. Do you have anything else to say about race in the Matrix? No. I mean, there's a lot there's more a to, lot say. to say, but it was really interesting. It was such an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And it feels very Wachowski. It does. It does. <laughs> I'm lo- watching Sunset. Like I said, I don't really like these movies. Like, I don't really like watching them. But, like, you come away with so much to chew on. And I have yeah. mad respect for them for that. Yeah. Like, even, like, they're flawed at times, right? Like, there's lots of things that you can point to as being, you know, problematic or, like, um, out of touch or, like, I, totally. But at the same time, like, these movies really make you think. And I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I think there, there's a clear love for philosophy. Yes. So, um, let's talk about gender. I'm ready. And the Matrix as a trans narrative. I think everyone's ready. I think everybody's ready for this, yeah, right? Everyone's in right waiting. Yeah. But first, we're going to talk about Taoism. <laughs> uh, so, I'm not an expert in most of the things we talk about here on Fake Geek Girls. I don't know shit about shit. Uh, unless it's that's Shrek. Not true. Unless it's Shrek. Yeah. That I know yeah. a lot. Uh, but I do want to emphasize that I know very little about Taoism, and I'm pulling this from Matt Lawrence's book. Uh, I encourage you to look up Taoism on your own and learn more about it or read about it more in depth in Lawrence's book splinter in your mind the reason i wanted to talk about it here is specifically because of um well first of all there's a lot of references to western philosophy philosophy throughout the matrix right there's a lot just a lot if we in the world we focus a lot on western philosophy but there are schools of philosophy from everywhere all over the place mm-hmm. the west does not have a monopoly on philosophy um Lawrence cites Taoism, a belief system from ancient China, in the section on race and gender as an influence. And that's why I wanted to talk about it here, because I found this really compelling. Um, There's a lot more to Taoism than we will discuss here, which is discussed in the chapter. I am just running out of space. We're an hour and four minutes into this outline, and I... We're we're halfway through. Um, So there is a lot more to Taoism than just this, but we're going to focus in on one very specific thing to give us an introduction to how ideas about gender that we often think of as opposing are actually harmonious before we start talking about the series as a trans narrative. Um, So again, this movie is heavily influenced by a, a wide variety of philosophies, and most of them like that we have discussed so far have been Western. But I think that Taoism also plays... A role here. I think that Taoism is maybe not as certainly not as explicitly referenced as uh, (laughs) as Baudrillard, but I think that Taoism is not irrelevant to the events of the Matrix. I'm gonna name my child, my eventual child, Baudrillard. (laughs) You want your child to get fucking bullied? Maybe Uh, we'll teach him to fight. (laughs) My my fighter child, (laughs) Baudrillard. Uh, in Taoism, it's better than Raphu. <laughs> no, Raphu is Raphu Baudrillard. Bob is very much up for Raphu. I hate you. Anytime we talk about Nancy, he's like, no, it's Raphu. Raphu. In Taoism, like. <laughs> In Taoism, life is an endless interaction between the opposing and complementary forces called yin-yang. You've probably heard of this before. Uh, yin is, I certainly had a lot of pants with little embroidered uh, peace signs and yin-yang symbols on or them like when I was a child. Or like the yin-yang twins? Of course. I would forget the, yin, the yin-yang twins. <laughs> the most important <laughs> part of Taoism. Um, 
in Taoism, there's a lot of uh, qualities associated with yin and yang energy. Yin is receptive. Yang is active. I'd like you to know that it's ying with a G. Right. Yang twins. I did not. I, Different. I was curious if it was yin. yin yang. <laughs> uh, yin is soft. Yang is hard. Yin is female. Yang is male. Yin is emotion. Yang is reason, etc. The symbol itself is a circle that seems to be swirling in two sort of teardrop shaped shaped halves one black and one white each with a circle of the other inside of it avatar lesser bender does as well with the fish they, yes they have the fish um the shape itself is balanced and in harmony with with itself one side creates the other just as much as it exists itself right it's it's a complete whole that is created by the other half of it which honestly is in line with some western philosophy talking about like mm. words only exist to define themselves in opposition to other things that's that's we've talked about that before it gets hard <laughs> some people view the association between receptivity softness and femaleness as sexist which it's hard to say i disagree like with that but i'm also not sure it's fair to disagree i feel like that's like a very much a 2015 feeling yeah these the thing is that these qualities receptiveness passiveness etc are not inherently bad qualities but in our culture they are seen as inferior right I'm not informed enough about ancient China to say what these associations meant to them, but I also think it's worth asking whether it is a bad thing to have all those concepts entangled when the yin-yang idea is the necessity of balance, right? Like, I don't feel comfortable saying it's sexist because I feel like that is reductive mm -hmm. or it is not looking at the complete picture of what is being communicated through the idea of yin and yang. Interestingly, Lawrence identifies Neo as being more aligned with yin energy than yang energy. Smith would be the opposing yang energy. Neo is more emotive, softer, and receptive. Smith is none of those things, right? Mm -hmm. And anytime Neo gains strength, Smith gains strength in opposition. Mm -hmm. they He learns something, the other one learns something until they build and build and build and they are like a bridge. A bridge, exactly. Um, everybody remembers that part. Yeah, they just literally <laughs> turn into bridges. Yeah, it's it's super weird. It's the Matrix. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> this embodying of the more feminine energy is one of the many ways that the film explores the spaces between binaries. Again, interesting in light of Keanu Reeves being mix mixed race, right? Um, yes, Neo is a man, but in embodying a more feminine energy, even in comparison to Trinity much of the time, uh, there is something different going on with Neo than with many other similar archetypal characters. Mm -hmm. Neo comes into the story not knowing anything. He is constantly like he's initially shown up by Trinity, who's much more powerful than him. He's just a and sweet by Morpheus. Child with he's nothing in between. He's a sweet little babe. Um Despite the seeming post-racial society of Zion, it's a complex topic, but maybe something we can theorize as being possible in this world, right? The idea of it is truly post-racial. Uh, even though many inhabitants would have grown up in the very not post-racial society of 1999, they wouldn't even have the excuse of voting for Obama the way that people yeah. now try to identify the world as post-racial. Um, so despite that seeming post-racial society, there is still sexism in the real world of The Matrix, right? Like the the characterization of the woman in red mm -hmm. as being like uh, um, ready for you, basically. She's ready for She's you. She's ready for you. She's red for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you have like there's more gender equality in terms of leadership and that kind of thing, but the way that like characters talk about women is still 
uh, still reflect some of the sexism that we would see in our own world, whereas it, that doesn't seem to be true of race. And that's very interesting. Um, and this is a quote from Lawrence. The fact that Zion has been much more successful overcoming racism than sexism may indicate that the Wachowskis believe that sexism presents the bigger challenge. While both racism and sexism are pervasive in contemporary society, most people do seem to be more open to race blindness than sex blindness. Many already regard race blindness as the ultimate ideal. This, of course, is not to say that they are without racial... racial What is up with me and saying Rachel? (laughs) (laughs) Rachel's just a racist. (laughs) Sorry, Rachel. Uh, This, of course, is not to say that they are without racial prejudices, but ideologically, a rapidly growing number of people see race blindness as the promise of the future. In contrast, the dominant ideology of sex and gender does not regard sex blindness as ideal for today or for the future. Many people think that a person's biological sex should matter, perhaps not for basic rights and liberties, but for a wide variety of personal and social decisions. I thought that was such an interesting point. Yeah. And I found this really compelling, especially because I think that Lawrence is awesome to something here and he doesn't even know that the Wachowskis are trans yeah that's so interesting like that's one of those things where I'm like I think I like it becomes the movie becomes smarter with more and more distance from it yeah um, which is very interesting. Yeah. Lawrence brings up the argument that the ideal of difference, which is present in our world and seemingly in, in Zion, uh, furthers the oppression of women. Sex blindness would not do that, as it would understand, stemming from Judith Butler, that gender is a construction. Uh, gender represents another system of control that limits our freedom. Um, Lawrence also raises the point that even the construction of our language points to the importance of gender in our society. We refer to people as he or she rather than typically with a gender pronoun, meaning we are constantly inundated with gender as difference and gender as a thing that, that matters to us, right? There are languages where where pronouns to refer to people are not gendered. Um, but in our language, we use he or she to immediately identify as somebody belonging to one of two binary categories. And if people can't, they freak out. Yes. They freak out. <laughs> they, they treat grammar as if it is a real thing and not a thing we have invented to explain like our experience of the world. I was once at, I used to work in like a construction industry and I was at like a, I don't know, some talk where they talked about like HR stuff for construction industries. And somebody had asked like, uh, what happens if we don't have a bath? Like, so, so essentially, is the bathroom issue and like mm-hmm. not knowing what to, the pronoun. And they, everyone was just kind of like stuttering over themselves. And like, th- they were like self destructing. Yeah. They didn't know. And I raised my hand and I'm like, you can just use they. Yeah. <laughs> like, instead of just like that. And everyone just was like, what? That's that just shows <laughs> how how important the gender binary yeah. is to our like not just our language but like to our perception of the world. Like people tend to short circuit when you pre- yes. pre- present them with an alternative. Um they die. Yeah, they just they, they just kill over. Yeah. And it, it it just like it just goes to show that like language is as is important in our concept of the world. Um so it's interesting that the Wachowskis create a world that seems race blind. There does not appear to be racism in, in Zion at all, uh, but not sex blind. Right. It does seem as though we are still aware of gender as being this very important thing that we must identify correctly. And the associations with gender 
are still the same as they were in the matrix, even though they are just as constructed as the concept of racism. Um, there are a couple of interpretations here, right? That the Wachowskis think we'll never escape the ideal of difference with regard to gender, right? That's one that they didn't think about gender at all, or that they think gender-based ideology is more difficult to overcome than race-based ideology. The first two seem unlikely to me, although it is possible that being inundated with gender-based discrimination daily in our world, they forgot to strip it out, strip it out. Um, but I don't think debating over whether sexism or racism is more ingrained in our culture is a productive exercise. They are both bad and some people experience more than one of them. Uh, but it was interesting to read this in light of the Wachowskis being trans and in light of some of the evidence that we will discuss later. What, like, why does sexism persist in Zion? I don't know that we have an answer. Can it ever be eradicated? I would be surprised if the Wachowskis did not think it could be eradicated, but as closeted, closeted trans women, I wonder if they were suggesting something about the amount of time it will take to get there. Um, just to be clear, I don't agree with the with them that racism is easier to eradicate than sexism. This is just what I'm gathering from the movies. That's not, I'm not super in agreement there, um, especially because of the role that white women play in, per in perpetuating racism and benefiting from racism. Um, so this is a quote from Mastering the Real, Trinity as the Real Hero of the Matrix by G. Christopher Williams. Um, this was, again, written before Resurrections. Uh, one of the more important of these oppositions in the film is male and female. And I want... This is M Melissa here. The idea of them as oppositions is where I want to tie back into Taoism. Like, is it opposite or is it balanced? Um, one of the more important of these oppositions in the film is male and female. Ironically, The Matrix, a film that seems to contain so many elements traditionally thought to be appealing to men with its emphasis on action and special effects, uses predominantly feminine narratives to drive its plot. The mythic structures that it draws on tend to be narratives centralized around female protagonists like Alice, in like Alice of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, Snow White, or Sleeping Beauty. At the same time, these feminine narratives are often inverted in unexpected ways that tend to drive the film's Baudrillardian themes. Baudrillardian not Baudrillardian. I apologize. Um, in part, it is the, th the film's focus on feminine narratives that leads me to believe that Trinity, not Neo, who most would identify as the hero of the Matrix, is the film's hero. Her very name suggests an inversion of basic cultural assumptions and expectations. Trinity takes her name from a god most decidedly masculine. This play on expectation is explicit in Neo's observation on first meeting her in the flesh, as opposed to hearing of her by name only in hacker culture and lore. I just thought you were a guy. And the irony is acknowledged most clearly in Trinity's simple but biting answer. Most guys do. I think calling Trinity the real hero of the Matrix until Resurrections uh, is a bit of a stretch. But given that we now know the Wachowskis are trans and that the idea of the structures in our culture being something you can transcend, I think there's something to this. I, I, I agree. And I think it's really interesting to put this, this whole idea into something that does feel very quote unquote masculine yeah. because I, especially when we were talking about yin and yang and one being more feminine and make, and it kind of feels like matrix, the matrix kind of feels like that. What you just said, I just thought it, what you were a guy. Uh -huh. Most men do. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah like it's legitimately <laughs> I, really clever. I thought the matrix was for dudes. Mm -hmm. Well, most dudes do think yeah. that. It's it's legitimately so interesting. I, I guess the Wachowskis are smarter than I gave them credit for. <laughs> um, Carrie Ann Moss, who plays Trinity, is obviously very beautiful, but she isn't beautiful in the way that, say, Monica Bellucci, who plays Persephone, is beautiful. Different kinds of beautiful, right? 
When you put the sunglasses and trench coat on Carrie Ann Moss, she and Keanu Reeves do not look that dissimilar, right? They look pretty similar. Masculinity and femininity, two values that our culture takes very seriously, are questioned in the way that the movie presents them. You can almost look at... Uh, at Trinity in the Matrix with the sunglasses and trench coat and look at Matrix uh, Matrix and look at Neo in the sunglasses and trench coat and think about them in terms of the yin yang right mm -hmm. the idea of both are balanced both contain parts of the other they're two parts of a whole rather than being two individuals just like the force just like the force <laughs> um, there is a playfulness here about the idea of gender that you know because our culture takes gender very seriously there's this playfulness about gender in this film that i think can fly under the radar for viewers who aren't looking for it this playfulness is in line with trans readings of the film as it deals with the fact that these categories of male and female masculine and feminine are not hard and fast borders right um there's one of the characters uh switch who appears in the first movie was originally well first of all the name switch <laughs> switch um, it was I never funny. thought about that. It was funny because I was reading an essay and it was like, well, Switch is obviously meant to be bisexual. And I was like, hmm, interesting. But in actuality, the original proposal was that Switch would be played by a person of one gender in the real world and a different gender in the Matrix. Um, that was shut down by the studio and they were not able to do it. So instead they chose an androgynous, more androgynous looking mm. actress um, who dresses, I think, more like in in sort of um gender fucky ways in the matrix like gender fucky is great she appears she appears in like a flesh colored shirt with a white blazer over the top of it so that it looks as if she is bare chested but she isn't um there's a there's a lot of playfulness in that character and just the idea that the character is named switch is itself quite funny um one of the most playful ways this shows up that people have pointed out is that in the last few frames of the original Matrix, uh, the camera zooms in on the word system failure. Like this is the last shot of the movie. And the camera zooms right between the letters M and F as Neo says that boundaries and borders are not real. This is when they're like, you know, we're just going to fucking hand it to you. Yeah, like straight up, it zooms in between the letters M and F as Neo is like, borders and boundaries, they're not real, folks. He does not say that exactly. But he might as but he well. Might as well. So, like, it, it's just, it's super playful and fun. And, you know, it's one of those things. I don't know if that's exactly what the Wachowskis intended, but, but it, it could be. Like, the evidence is there. This feels like undercover, like, movie. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like a dude, quote unquote, movie, but it's like, so not. Yeah. And it feels like. A, like almost like an inside joke now. Yeah, it really feels as if they were winking the entire time at you. And it's so funny. Um, so while the idea of yin and yang and male and female can be looked at as restrictive or as boxing you in, it's also possible to see them as something that we all share and embody at once. Balance exists within us. And the balance is also an opportunity to explore the spaces between what we see as rigid categories, right? Because when you look at, at the yin and yang symbol, it's not like, again, it is not hard boundaries there. Each contains the other and each is formed by the presence of the other. And we can see that as like, oh, I have to be yin or yang, but yin also contains yang. Yang also contains yin. And, you know, the whole is constructed out of these, you can look at them as oppositions or you can look at them as harmonious. Um, and I, th I thought that was really interesting and expressed in such an interesting fashion in the movie. Yeah. 
Um, this is a quote from How the Matrix Universalized a Trans Experience and Helped Me Accept My Own by Emily Vanderweff, who writes, The plot of the Matrix mirrors the online gender experimentation of the early digital era when some unsuspecting egg, if you're not familiar, <laughs> egg is a term for a person who is trans but who has not yet acknowledged it to themselves. Um, what is egg? <laughs> the plot of the Matrix mirrors the online gender experimentation of the early digital era when some unsuspecting egg might log into a chat room as a woman and discover how much better it feels to embody that version of themselves and discover oh sorry i went back a little bit uh embody that version of themselves inhabit that experimental space long enough and you might eventually find yourself breaking through the shell containing the hermetically sealed world you thought you lived into some other reality entirely that reality might reduce everything else in your life to rubble but getting to experience it is worth the fallout the characters of the matrix reject the names they were born with in neo's case thomas anderson in favor of their chosen names their wardrobe Mm -hmm. grows increasingly androgynous and leather bound the entire movie is about transcending the limitations of the physical form to explore what the mind is capable of bodies are at best a suggestion your brain is what really matters so when you look at this movie with transness in mind it all slots into into place right this isn't incompatible with the things we talked about in our first episode baudrillard simulacra and simulacra and simulation which i wrote wrong um for example because all of this is intertwined gender is one of the many myths that our culture sees as truth right we we assume that gender is real and tangible and embodied when in fact it is performative it is constructed it is just comprised of signs rather than as like anything real there's a really good um in, like in congress one of I, I don't know what it was for but um i think they were talking to a teacher and they asked the teacher what is a woman mm-hmm. and she's like i can't i'm a woman like that was she's like that's the only way i can answer it yeah i'm a woman yeah like how do you say what a woman is right you can't you can't do it um Gender is one of the many myths that our culture sees as truth, a way of explaining, for example, our differing bodies and what those bodies mean. In actuality, gender is as much a story as anything else, right? Our body has no inherent meaning. And that's not a bad thing. Like, it is not a bad thing for gender to be disconnected or disentangled from the experience of the body. Of course, that's personal, right? Like some people feel very rooted in their body as it is. Some people can want to change their body to ma- to better match their perception of their self. That's all okay. The point of this is that gender itself does not stem inherently from what the configuration of your body is. Um, and the connection to the internet that Vanderweff brings up here has really interested me because it's not something I thought about at all. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. What better place to experiment with identity that that feels better to you than the one you were assigned at birth than a place where your body is not present to be judged and assigned value by others? They right? must have been so mad when the online people <laughs> co-opted Red Pill. They must have just been like all our work for nothing <laughs> really really that that when they responded uh, when lily responded to elon musk and and ivanka trump on twitter and said fuck you both that's 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 the that's vibe it. yeah uh this is a quote from the matrix as a transgender metaphor by adam pilfold bagwell um aside from never being explicitly described as such neo is practically an archetypal trans woman every day he puts on a suit and tie and goes to work but no matter how hard he tries he can't fit in he has friends in the counterculture but he doesn't really connect with them either and when they go out he stands in a corner staring at beautiful women something is always off always wrong a splinter in his mind as morpheus puts it i think it is easy 
for viewers to read these events, like these things that are literally happening in the movie, right, as emblematic of the same kind of disenchantment and ennui that's present in films like Fight Club. Although it's, I mean, Fight Club is written by a gay man, right? Like, it's not as simple as we want it to be. Um, and I there think- is a really good scene where it looks like Fight Club at the end. I can't remember where it is. But I remember <laughs> being like, oh, that looks just like the ending of Fight Club. Yeah. Um, I, so I think it's really easy to read it as just disenchantment and ennui, right? Which results directly from capitalism and pressures to conform to certain masculine expectations. Can, can you explain what ennui means? Ennui is like that sense of like existential boredom and dissatisfaction. Oh, okay. um, but when looking at The Matrix as a trans narrative, there's an additional layer of distance to Neo that could very well stem from being trans, right? Um, this is a quote from that same essay, The, Ma- the Matrix is Transgender Metaphor by Adam Pilfold Bagwell. Um, Morpheus wakes from wakes him from his dream with a red pill very reminiscent of spiro spiro spironolactone. I'm so sorry if I said that wrong. Uh, the most common testosterone suppressant used by trans women, which typically comes as a sunburnt red tablet. Just as an aside, I don't know this for sure, but some of the essays I read like contradicted what pill hmm. this would be referencing here. Um, this pill in particular, which now is very common, is no longer red, which we'll talk about later. But the pill, the pill, as I understand, the pill that was commonly given to trans women at the time was in fact red. Um, after literally rebuilding his body, Morpheus apologizes to Neo for the stress he's going through, telling him they have a rule against freeing people from the Matrix after a certain age. Along with Cypher's insistence in the film's opening that their attempt to free Neo will kill him, this is a reference to the toxic narrative among trans people formed by gender normative society's continuous pressure to conform to its standards that you will never be able to truly be the gender you identify with if you transition after puberty. That's interesting. I really don't have much to add to this. I just think this is all really compelling evidence toward a trans reading that I totally missed, right? did they originally reject the idea that it was a trans I am not sure. I know that Lily has since, like, she did an interview that I linked in the last episode where she talked about, like, some of the the ways that, like, there are, if if it's not a, like, trans narrative entirely, which we'll get to, like, I think that's really important. Um, It was their actual life. They, yeah, they were certainly gesturing towards their experiences and, like, throwing in these things that were definitely like intended to reflect the trans experience because it was their life because it's their life right in the same way that in resurrections like that's just neo's life that he's recreated and everybody's sitting around interpreting it interpreting it in all these different ways and he's like this is my life i sure do that's what happens love the wachowski biopic the yeah. Matrix. <laughs> um Again, like it doesn't matter. Oh, there's so there's this level of sub- subtlety right here that I think can easily fly under the radar to cis viewers, but to trans viewers, they may be able to see this and be like, yep. "Oh yeah, I get that." Not even like just in a haha funny way, but they may find themselves find it resonating with them in a way that cis viewers are just in there like, "Oh, red pill, cool, <laughs> just like Alice in Wonderland." <laughs> yeah. Um, again, it doesn't matter if it was intentional, although the Wachowskis were trans before they were out. They were aware of this. Um, the evidence is there and it makes for this very compelling reading. 
Um, this is a quote from What We Can Learn About Gender from the Matrix by Andrea Long Chu, who writes, but let's face it, allegorically is the least interesting way to read anything. Nothing ruins a question like an answer. The world is weirder than that. Consider, for instance, that the most common form of orally administered prescription estrogen today is probably the beveled, flat-faced, two-milligram estriol pill... Est- estradiol. I'm so sorry. I cannot pronounce medications. Uh, the the est- estradiol... Anyway, consider, for instance, that the most common form of orally administered prescription estrogen today is probably the beveled, flat-faced, two-milligram estradiol pill supplied by the Israeli pharmaceutical company Teva. Teva? Teva? I don't know. Uh, It is, as it happens, blue. (laughs) To exit the matrix is not to know the truth, but to discover the poverty of knowledge. Welcome to the desert of the real, Morpheus intones after Neo takes the red pill. There is a reason the real is a desert. What good is the truth if nothing grows there? The notion that gender was socially constructed instead of biological fact was intended to free people like me from our assigned sexes. It did this, perhaps, but only at the cost of the very categories into which we sought entry. As a good feminist, I know there's no such thing as a woman. As a woman, I resent this. I love this essay because it grapples with some of the difficulty of having your mind opened to this kind of thinking Mm -hmm. in a way that's more interesting than I want to eat steak again, a la (laughs) cipher. In fact, it is very hard to resist conditioning, right? Conditioning affects us all, regardless of like your gender, your race. Like we are all impacted by it. That's why things like internalized racism, homophobia, misogyny, etc. exist. We're all inundated with the same like the same cultural programming, right? And even when we when we acknowledge that it is programming, it is still hard to disentangle it from your sense of self. Um, Sometimes it makes us very uncomfortable to do that. Things in a movie are as simple as taking a pill and understanding the world better. In real life, we have to grapple with not having adequate language to match up with our experiences. The category of woman is real in that it has meaning and value to people who call themselves woman, but it is also not real in that it is something experienced, felt, and created rather than something that can be verified through our senses. Nobody likes to be told that their identity is not real, right? It's like nobody likes to have that rug pulled out from under them. Mm-hmm. I can't speak for what this author is taking away from the many essays about the Matrix as a trans allegory, but one thing I think is important to keep in mind as we talk about this is that nobody is obligated to embrace or like the Matrix simply because it can be read that way. Mm-hmm. Um, if this movie makes a trans person feel alienated or uncomfortable with what it's saying about categories that carry a lot of meaning for those individuals, such as gender, that's okay. It's valid. Yeah, they do not have to be like, well, I have to like it. You can dislike, you know, you can dislike this movie for its portrayal of gender. You can dislike the story or its aesthetics. You can dislike Keanu Reeves. There's literally no reason you have to be invested in the story, even if you are trans. And I think that's something that is important to remember because I think there's this like tendency of like, I'll use the example of, of cis people talking to trans people here, but like, <laughs> I, you know, I know people... People being like going to trans people being like, oh, you're trans. I bet you love the Matrix. <laughs> like, it's just they don't have to, you know, in the same way of like, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, like, a, I guess a big one right now. Oh, you're gay. Have you watched Heartstoppers? <laughs> like, it's yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> um, there's no there's no obligation. So like, I, I again, I don't want to make claims about what this author is feeling while talking about the Matrix, but um, it is like it is uncomfortable to be confronted with this knowledge and it is it is totally okay 
for anybody to watch the matrix and be like, I don't feel comfortable with what that had to say about gender or I don't feel comfortable with that. Um, it's, I mean, it's different coming from a cis person being like, actually it's fucked up that people can be a different gender. That's a, that's, that's a, a whole di- different, thing. that's a whole different thing. But like, it's okay to disagree even if like you feel like you should agree, you know, like it's okay. It's okay yes. to, and same the other way. Some people like, uh, what's sleepaway camp. Some people, right. some people find that, not good but like themselves in there even though it's like really problematic yeah and that's okay like it is not you are not obligated to feel one way or another about media that is like quote-unquote about you you know um this is a quote from uh is the matrix a trans film revisiting the wachowskis through a trans lens which is by naya later who writes uh The Matrix proposes that your self-image is separate from your physical body, that everyone raised in an oppressive system will violently defend that system unless they're ready to rip themselves free of it, that we all fall on our first jump, but with love and belief from others, we can become ourselves, that our duty is to free others after that and to break the entire system so it cannot be rebuilt. Yes, gender is one of those systems, but films like Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending are more concerned with the exploitation of proletariat bodies to feed a surface of luxury. These themes have more to say about capitalism than a reading that treats gender subtext like crossword um can you explain to me what proletariat bodies mean proletariat is like the working class oh, okay okay i i was looking at it in, at a different in a different way like a proletariat body being something physical oh so pro the exploitation of proteli- proletariat body is basically i haven't watched cloud atlas and i watched jupiter's ending like ten thousand years ago but basically what the author is saying here is that um the Wachowskis films are often about the dismantling of systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the Wachowskis are trans, we look at their movies and we want to see transness and gender everywhere. But there is, in fact, more going on. And in Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending, it is more about the exploitation of the working class and their bodies specifically okay. rather than um, just gender. Uh, I really liked this article because while it celebrates a lot of the beauty that the Matrix is suggesting and its pushback against the systems that hold us captive, it's also a great reminder that trans people are more than just trans, right? Like trans is trans is a uh, separate prefix, or it's it's not even. I would say it's more of an adjective, right? Descri- describing people, it's not even a prefix. Yeah. Um, that tells us that trans people are people. Right? It's an adjective describing the type of people. Um, it only adds to the layer of like why it's so just vicious for politicians and stuff to be like, don't t- teach transness right. in, in schools because it's just like even more dehumanizing. Exactly. Um, when we look at movies like The Matrix, there is more to unearth there than just the Wachowskis' transness. Like the rest of us, they carry thoughts and biases that go beyond their gender, and it does them and their films a disservice to only see gender where there are, in fact, a bunch of meanings and layers to see. This is especially true when talking about the Wachowskis, who really do tell these wonderful, imaginative stories, but have a real problem with interrogating race and colonialism (laughs) in those same stories. Uh, We can't assume that they know what they're doing in every sphere just because they are trans, and we can't assume that everything they are doing comes back to gender just because they are trans. That's like the perfect, the perfect oppressed person or the perfect right trans person, the perfect gay person, and like they can do no wrong. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. The Wachowskis are people, and they are as flawed and complex as the rest of us. And the art that they create. I'm sure is as much about gender as it is about all of these other things that interest them. The exploitation of the working class, this utopian vision they have of a post-racial society, just like art. They like that. 
um, compassion. They like that. Like all of these things are folded together and most of them are in conversation with one another, but we don't need to boil every single thing they say down to gender and only gender when in fact we can talk a lot broader because they're capable of caring about those things too. But um, they didn't talk about gender so much before they came out. So like, well, they, I mean, I mean, I get, but like in interviews and stuff in, in interviews, they didn't, but they did in their work. Yes, they did in their work. Um, but in interviews, not so much. I don't know. Like, I'm not familiar with their, I think it was their first film bound, but I know they struggled. They were not out at the time. Um, they struggled with getting it entered into a lesbian film festival hmm. because, and I haven't seen it, so I could be wrong about the details here, but I think the film is a romance a lesbian romance but they couldn't get it entered because they were not perceived as women hmm. so there was like they were still talking about gender but not being read as talking about gender mm-hmm. when you look at their when you look at their films now and you know that they're trans women you're like oh you were it was there all along but they were also talking about lots of other stuff mm-hmm. they it's not fair to pigeonhole them into only talking about gender when they have a lot to say about other things mm-hmm. too um, and as readers, we're missing, as viewers, as readers, readers in the like text sense, like anything is a text. Um, we're doing ourselves and we're doing Wachowski's a disservice if when we look at it, all we see is gender. Um, this is a quote from Why the Matrix is a Trans Allegory by A. Martinez in an interview with Emily Vanderwerf. Vander, Vanderwerf. I now realize I said her name wrong through the rest of the episode. <laughs> I'm sorry I left out the R. Um So in this interview, Vanderwerf says, I think that the main thing that the fourth film is about, without spoiling it, is about the idea that these binaries that we've built our our lives upon are often not as cut and dry as we'd like to think. And that goes beyond gender. There's all kinds of binaries we've built within our lives. You know, good evil is a very obvious one. I do find interesting, early in this movie, there are characters talking about ways you can sort of interpret what's happening within the idea of the Matrix. And there are people who bring up trans identities. And like the idea is sort of within the sequence that you can't actually boil any of this down to one thing and I sort of appreciated that as a movie critic who enjoys the trans themes of these films but also doesn't want them to be about just that I appreciated that Lana Wachowski dropped that in there I loved this about Resurrections. Um, it's an extremely meta movie in about a hundred different ways. Uh, but the scene where all the developers argue over what the game is really about <laughs> is so, so interesting. In actuality, right, the game is about Neo's experiences as he experienced them. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's not, he's not like telling a story about transness or about capitalism listen neo's the one he's not the intellectual (laughs) he's just he's telling a story that is either reflective of his real experiences or of his psychosis but all he's doing is telling that story um it is not to him necessarily an invention but everybody brings something to the table in this case literally like they're literally (laughs) all bringing something to the table they're literally talking at tables um as part of their interpretation of this like seminal work in games uh nobody is necessarily wrong note that neo the author just sits there and lets them draw interpretations from what is to him either his psychosis or his real life depending on how he's feeling about it at the moment he just sits there and there is evidence for all of those interpretations, right? And he, none of them ask him. No, nobody asks him. Everybody just sits there and theorizes. And he's he seems content. He seems a little baffled by it, but content with that, right? Yeah. He's not like, no, you're wrong. It's not about that. 
Because in fact, it kind of is about all of those things, right? Of course, you can have a poor reading of a text. Um, Like if I watch The Matrix and I, I mean, honestly, if I watched The Matrix and came away with it being about male supremacy and how women are evil and run the world, I did a poor reading of The Matrix. A lot of people did that, but whatever. Um, I guess they didn't really do that. They really just used the red pill as a metaphor, but whatever. Um, It is telling to me, I mean, there's so much about the, about resurrections that's really meta the fact that it's like if we don't make this movie we're gonna make it without you it's literally invoking warner brothers like literally just playing scenes yeah just it's hysterical um but you have neo there while everybody else makes interpretations of his work just sitting there kind of taking it all in to him it's just the story that he told or it is just his life and he is not the one he is the one he's not the one to make uh claims about what it was about it's not up to him it's the interpretations of all these other people he's like death of the author guys yeah he's he's literally literally death of the author there well he's not dead but um i think that part of the The reason of the author the matrix of the author um i think that part of the reason i wasn't super into the matrix is that like one of the major ones is that i watched it long after it came out and by that point it had already been referenced to death like i i mean i'd seen shrek what more did I need to say? Um, I was also a teenager who didn't understand it, um, but I was also bored of it by the time I got there. Like, cause I was uh, like, oh yeah, the bullet time. Ooh. Um, but seeing Resurrections at least closer to the time when it came out was a lot of fun. Um, it also didn't make as much of a splash, so it wasn't quoted and reenacted to death by the time I saw it. Well, you can't you can't quote it because it's just quoting it. Yeah, it's just quoting itself. Um, it's a fucking sim. Is it a fucking simulacra of the ma- the Matrix Resurrections? Don't, it's a simulacra of the Matrix. Don't, don't start this. It'll become Inception. <laughs> um, oh my god! Don't st- and you know they did that on purpose. You're gonna lay awake at night tonight, going, "Is it?" Oh God! It has oh God! Baudrillard. It has to be a simulation. But then I'm like, there was a game though, right? What do you mean, Matrix game? Yes, but it was not called just the Matrix. There was Enter the There was Enter the Matrix, and there was the Matrix Online. If I'm not gonna like dig much more deeper into, I would say simulation. Mm-hmm. But I don't know because it's so self-referential. It's so interesting. Um, so like, I ended up really liking Resurrections, and I would say it's it's either my favorite or it's like tied with the first one for my favorite. Um, even though it had a, just a serious mushy middle problem. Like I've, I was rereading the plot to write the summary for this. And I was like, I forgot about all that because yeah. it was kind of dull. Um, but when it was good, it was really good. The beginning was great. The beginning was excellent. Like I loved it. Um, and I really, really like the ending of resurrections as a sort of cap on the conversations these movies are having about gender specifically. Um, because and we've probably talked about this on this very podcast in a way that I would no longer talk about it um, because we started this podcast a long ass time ago, you guys. Um, 2014. Yeah. So eight years. Our opinions shift and change over time. Like between one episode. Yeah. We're always changing our ideas. It's the beauty of being human, right? We don't have to believe the same, the same, the same things that we believed even 10 minutes ago, right? We can change our minds. Because we gain more knowledge. Exactly. Um, so there is this this thing called Trinity Syndrome that was a big like along with the Bechdel test the Makomori test etc there was like way back when we started this podcast there was this kind of like a series of litmus tests that you would apply to media to see whether it could be quote-unquote feminist or not or whether you could even like it I think was how a lot of people were using it Um, one of them 
one of those ways that people were talking about was Trinity syndrome, which is like the idea that um, despite the fact that a female character is more capable, smarter, stronger, etc., she only becomes an aid to this male character who is not as good as she is. Like Leia. Uh, yeah. Um, Wild Style in the Lego movie was another one. <laughs> uh, but it, it was named after Trinity, who is more capable yeah. for the majority of the movie than Neo, but Neo is the hero of the story. Um, so the ending of Resurrections also feels meta to me in that it feels a bit like an overcorrection to criticisms of Trinity Syndrome, right? You know, maybe, but it also feels like the natural arc of a story about choice and free will mm -hmm. and beating the system by two imaginative trans women. Even if Lily wasn't involved in the sequel, which she wasn't. Um, it felt like, like as much as it was, I felt a bit of an overcorrection. It it felt a little a little cheesy. I'd rather go that way than just not do it. Yeah, I liked it. Like it's okay for things to be a little cheesy. I think the Wachowskis as directors are a little cheesy. Yeah, they're. You know? I mean, that's their. That's what they do. Yeah, and it I like Wachowski. That. I like that. I like that about it. Um, and I I feel like. I'm glad that well, we haven't. We were just talking about this with regard to Fire Island. We have not left the litmus test uh, approach to media criticism behind. It's but a bad thing. It's bad. Um, I think that like it's great for starting a conversation, but we can't end there. You gotta have some nuance. Um, so I don't know. I'm kind of I I'm very happy that that was the ending of of um, of Resurrections, and I mm. like that that did instill this like kind of counterbalance to the endings of the previous movies um and it, and i am like it is a bit meta to have like to like almost on page address trinity syndrome by having trinity be the more capable one but again it, it feels natural to well, me also it does because like she i mean there's evidence from <laughs> you could you could like go back and trace like she is the more capable one. yeah for sure for sure it just so happens that neo for whatever reason, is able to manipulate the code initially better than she is. Because he's a hacker and she's not? Yeah. I guess? Yeah. Um, I'm in. I don't know. It feels like a joyful overcorrection, right? It doesn't... And that, yeah. What were we What were we talking about recently where it was like... It was uh, Twilight. It was Eclipse. With the like... It felt like she was preemptively addressing criticisms. Mm -hmm. yeah. This doesn't feel like that. This feels like, hey, you were kind of right... And we're going to answer it in a way that feels as joyful as possible. And that's how the ending of Resurrections feels to me. The yeah. fact that it's it's Trinity in the, in the end who can fly and who carries Neo. She's um, the Peter Pan. Yes. I, I, Neo is Wendy. It's, I, think it's, I think it's so joyful and fun. Um, and that is, that is my opinion. So joyful and fun. Um, I liked it overall. Uh, I'm glad we did this these episodes, even though I'm not the biggest Matrix fan. But it, it was so interesting. Will it, I feel like it's the same thing with with Twilight, but it's much more happy. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't hate this as much as Twilight. But the or the Vampire good. Diaries, <laughs> Jesus. But the Jesus. conversation is good. Yeah, it's true. Um, do you have anything else to say about the Matrix before we wave goodbye to it forever? No, me neither. It was really good. I do actually. There's a lot that we didn't get to talk yeah. about. I really did. I love the conversation about the white, a white man. Yeah. I hope that I can hold on to that Baudrillard stuff. I hope that it's, I hope. You could write it down and like note card it. Yeah. I hope it's fixed in there, but I don't know. We'll find out. I don't hold on to most of the, <laughs> I'll, I'll remember like the, the ideas, but I don't remember who said them. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I don't know who said them. Yeah. 
Um, so that's it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com, which has com. C-H-A-C-A-H-M. No, it's C-O-M. It's a regular website. Um, fakeygirlscast.com, which has all of our past episodes, a link to our Patreon, where for a small donation per month, you can get cool rewards. I also want to give an extra special giant thank you to Emily June. Emily June, thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to say what for yet because we don't have anything. We don't have anything to show for it. We might by the time this episode comes out. But as we're recording, I don't have anything to show for it. Emily June is helping me with a very, very, very big and important project. So shout out to Emily June. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Also, if you like this and you want to talk with other people who like this, consider joining our Discord. All you have to do is send me an email at contact at fakeygirlscast.com. That's it. I'll send you a link. Um, It's very fun. We talk about all kinds of stuff. We're talking about the Barbie movie. We're talking about Barbies. Yeah. Our favorite Barbies. Um, pet pictures. It's all there. Everything you need. Um, next time, it's Pushing Daisies. I'm re- I started rewatching it and it's just utter joy. I love Pushing Daisies <laughs> so much. Lee Pace is so handsome and he's so tall. And those are the, the facts That's are those. It. The facts are those. He's so handsome and he's so tall. Uh, after that, we're going to be doing What We Do in the Shadows. I'm very excited. Even if I have to talk about vampires some more. But what we do in the shadows is really good. So I'm ready. Um, and that's it. All right. Catch you on the flip side of the Matrix. Whoa. Oh.